In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, I follow a journey from an amazing launch to near bankruptcy to profitability with Shai Schechter of Right Message. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 472. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing startups. Whether you've built your fifth startup or you're thinking about your first. I'm Rob, and today with Shai Schechter, we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the mistakes we've made. Welcome to this week's episode. I'm your host, Rob Walling. Each week on this show, we look at ambitious startups, founders who are looking to make a tiny dent in our corner of the world, and maybe that only impacts the five people around them or the thousand people that use their app. But it's folks who want to build interesting things and have a greater purpose that is around building something larger than themselves, but they're not willing to sacrifice their life, their health, or their relationships in order to do that. These are not the typical Silicon Valley startups where fundraising can be a goal in itself and where people build slide decks instead of building businesses. We want to build real businesses with real customers who pay us real money. And along the way, we like to be meticulous and disciplined such that we can build these businesses over and over. We find repeatable ways that work over and over, and it's not just a luck shot. It's not hitting the startup lottery that allows us to build successful companies. I just got back from three days on the north shore of Lake Superior, and that's about a three-hour drive north of where I live in Minneapolis. And I, I got a little room in a lodge with a fireplace and a whirlpool tub, and I had this great view of Lake Superior, and you can't see the other side of Lake Superior because it's so big. And so aside from the waves, you know, when it gets windy, there are only two-foot waves, three-foot waves. Aside from that, it really does kind of feel like you're on the coast of, of California or the coast of Oregon. You know, it's this coastal feel to it. And it was great for me to take a step back and to basically have a personal retreat and to reflect on what's been going on over the past 18 months. I used to take a retreat like this every six to 12 months. It's something Sherry and I have both done over the years. And I've really fallen off the wagon in terms of doing that to my detriment. And I, I don't remember the last time I took even three days you know, away from the family just thinking. I, it was either 18, maybe 24 months ago. And so I really, yeah, I really did enjoy my time away. I feel like it allowed me to think. There was some, of course, some, some work stuff crept in, but I kept make it, I just wrote that down or send it to my Trello board. And the deeper thinking, the high level thinking about both my kind of my personal growth along with growth within the family as a father and a husband, as well as growth at work and where we're taking Tiny Seed and MicroConf and the podcast over the next, you know, 12 to 24 months. That that was the high level visionary thinking that I really wanted to to kind of get done. And that was, uh, it was, it was super fun. I like thinking long-term and then, you know, coming back all motivated. So here I am back in town and I'm kind of raring to go tomorrow morning once, once work kicks off. But while I was up at the North Shore with crappy Wi-Fi, I recorded this interview with Shy, and I think that Zencaster did its job. We'll know in the final recording, but I think it'll come out and you won't even notice that there were times when it came in and out and I eventually had to pair with my phone as I've said before, the show must go on, and uh, we ship here every week on Tuesday and even some weeks on Thursday. I hope you've been listening to uh, and enjoying Tiny Seed Tales. If you haven't already pinged me about Tiny Seed Tales, um, if you've listened to it, I would love to hear your thoughts, positive and constructive. 
you can Twitter DM me or frankly, you can write into the show. I read all the emails and, you know, you can say, I don't want this, this played on the show, but questions at startups for the rest of us.com will come directly to us. I enjoyed this interview with Shai Schechter. You probably know him as the co-founder of Write Message. And he and Brennan Dunn, who's the other co-founder of Write Message, had met back in 2014, 2015 via Brennan Dunn's Double Your Freelancing community. Shai actually did some consulting work for Brennan and met him the first time in person at a Double Your Freelancing event in Sweden. And I know that they've connected many times you know, in person at, at microconfs as well, as they both come to uh, a lot of the microconfs that we hold. And here you're about to hear the the story of Write Message, which started as a conversation in 2016 about productizing what basically Brennan had hand-coded for his own purposes. And Shai had been working on similar stuff uh, for his clients. And they frankly threw out a proof of concept pretty quick on Twitter. And for the next couple of months, they validated the idea, trying to build an audience, figuring out if the idea would, would fly. And in the first half of 2017, they had given it a name and, and bought a domain name and they were trying to get $10,000 in pre-orders, basically just beating the drum and building the audience. And by June of 2017, Shai and Brennan had a crude product that beta customers could log into and they could, they could use in a rudimentary fashion. And so as I like to say, we're going to join the story in progress. That's actually something I, I like to do in these interviews is, is try to get past the, I'll say the less relevant details and really get to the meat of, of the interesting, you know, the interesting pieces of it rather than telling the entire origin story. So we're going to join this uh, startup story already in progress. And I hope you enjoy the conversation with Shai as much as I did. Shai, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So we're going to dig into uh, some right message story today. I, I think a lot of folks listening to the show will be familiar with right message, either from you know having followed Brennan for years, or having you know I, I've mentioned it a few times as as one of my angel investments in bootstrappers. But you did a really well thought out talk at MicroConf Europe here just just about a month ago. It was well received. It was kind of the story, the first year, year and a half of right message, and I realized that that the story had, it has all the, the beats, the ups and the downs and, you know, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, all the things that make a good startup story. And so I wanted to uh, bring you on here to talk a little more about it. So we'll touch on some points that were in the talk and obviously go deeper on a few that I think, uh, you know, I was super interested in. Cool. Sounds good. So to kick us off, we talked offline before this, and you mentioned that you, you know, in June of 2017, you had a crude product um, that beta customers could log in and play around with. But really, you took the next six months to kind of do the slow launch or the customer development, essentially, with those early users, because so, six months of building is not actually that much time, especially if you're still, you know, doing it part time and, and kind of transitioning into it. And really, your your official launch was in. January 2018. So it's just about two years ago. What was that like to finally be able to launch it? Like, what was your confidence level like at that point based on this six months of kind of early access or beta? And then, you know, finally being able to say, we're launched, we're sending the email, we're doing the big Twitter storm, we're, we're just, you know, pulling out all the guns and doing the big kind of the big splash. Yeah, honestly, we were, we were fairly confident about it just because we'd spent so long building up that audience. We, we had people who were trying to get into the beta even when we weren't letting people in. It was that feeling of like people banging the door down. You know, people, people were really wanting it. And that was a good feeling. And it, you know, it meant that we were, we were confident going into the launch. We'll talk about how maybe it was overconfidence later, I guess. Yeah, at that, at that point, at that point, everything was kind of 
everything was really good. Yeah, and that was right around the time you guys raised an angel round, right? A little more than $500,000. I participated in that. And if my recollection, that was late 2017, early 2018. Was it before Was it before you officially launched? Before official launch, yeah. So that was second half of, 20, of 2017. We had an email from actually one of our very first, the CEO of one of our very first customers, basically saying like, you're probably going to say no to this. He knew we were bootstrappers. He's like, you're probably going to say no, but I think you should take money and here's why. Um, and he laid out a bunch of reasons. I showed the email in the in the talk, right? Where he's like, I think you should take like half a million or a million or whatever. Like this very casual kind of, let's throw money at this. And to us as bootstrappers, we're like, what do you mean half a million or a million or whatever? Like these are huge numbers, right? It's like, yeah, like we've having having extra 10, 20 grand a month to spend on a product would be amazing. But he's talking huge numbers. What was that conversation like then? Because obviously you and Brennan must have sat down and said, is this, I mean, was it an instant no? Was it, what, did you have to grind that out between the two of you of like, hey, we should? Did you ask for advice? What What was that thought process like? Yeah. So at first it was an instant no. Like it was a very easy kind of, we bootstrap. That's what we know. We don't, we don't like the idea of, Kind of, this wasn't institutional money. This was, you know, it was. Um, we're talking about uh, angels and you know, a seed at this point. But we're like, we don't like that idea. It's not for us. It's great for some some people, some businesses, but that's not what we do. And we kind of broke it down into rather than just a blanket no. We were like no. We wanted to say like no because. And so we broke it down into like you know all these things that we had seen as the the downsides of taking money. Right. We didn't want to give up control of the business. We wanted to we wanted to control where it was going. We didn't want to. One of the points was like, we always want to be doing what's best for our customers and this audience that we've built. And we don't want kind of shareholders who are trying to get us to go in a different direction that's going to benefit them and maybe not be in the best interest of our customers. Another one was that we didn't want to, we were like, we were moving really fast on building this and on on like building up demand for it. And we're like, we're going to have to stop doing all that if we're going to be putting together a pitch deck and going out to investors and finding them and all the, you know. And we laid out these reasons to to him. And he essentially shot each one down one by one. Not in a way of they're not legitimate, but in the sense of we can work around that. So where we had said, we don't want to give up control, he's like, okay, so you'll take the money, but the investors will not have any control. They won't take any board seats. They won't have any say. You'll do what's best for your customers. You'll, you two will still be in complete control of what's happening. You know, you don't want to spend that time pitching. You won't have to. He's like, I will put together a syndicate of these investors that I know. You won't lift a finger. Like, we will get this money together for you. You know, you'll give away a percentage of the business. We'll use a safe. It's nice and it's an easy way of raising money. And he just kind of put a line through each one of our objections. And at that point, we're like, I think it would be naive to kind of to say no for the sake of it. Like it's always about I don't want those consequences. And when those were all taken off the table, we were like, actually, this money would accelerate us. It would help us move faster. We could, you know, we could hire a few people. We could um, do things quicker than than we can just the two of us. And so we said yes. It's really interesting when you do that, huh? When you remove kind of the dogma or the binary nature of yes, you should always take funding. No, you should never take funding. But when you actually start looking at the reasons, it's like 20 years ago, we probably, should, you know, we being kind of the bootstrapper microconf crowd should probably not have taken funding because the only funding available was institutional from venture capitalists. And in those cases, all of the things you raised, all of the the objections you raised were true. You needed a deck. You needed to spend six months raising on Sand Hill Road. You needed to take a huge amount of money. You lost control of often. They would have a board seat or more board seats than you. You know, just it was just not a founder-friendly environment. But 
I've been kind of beating this drum for several years now. There are opportunities these days to raise these these small, they're non-institutional rounds. As you said, it was from people like the CEO who emailed you. Somehow I got involved at some point. I don't even know if Brennan mentioned he was raising or if I approached him or what. But And you know, it's a bunch of small checks from probably just successful. I imagine it's a bunch of other SaaS founders and, and your network, you know, the two of you that came in. And so the, they really don't you know, put the pressure on, on you that maybe we, we all think would be suddenly on you, you know, having raised around. I'm curious, you know, we're going to walk through the rest of the story and, and how, you know, the funding impacted some of your decisions. But looking back, do you regret raising the money? Do you think it was the right choice? I don't regret taking the money. I regret some of the decisions we made spending it, but I don't regret the fact that we took money. I think that was a smart move. And so that really kicked you in. So you guys raised just over half a million dollars. What, what did that feel like? Again, as a bootstrapper to look in, in your business bank account and see half a million dollars in there and to think, was it like the world is our oyster right now? We're basically launching here in the next month. We have a bunch of demand. We have people saying, take my money, please. And we have half a million in the bank. Talk me through what that, what that was like emotionally. Yeah, that was that was a. I mean, it was great. Like, I mean, <laughs> I don't think there's another answer I could give to that. Like, that's anyone would enjoy that feeling, right? Everything was going right. You get all this extra validation. Like, the fact that people were willing to put that money in is just more validation, right? So, yeah, everything was good. There was that money sitting in the bank. It was, it was exciting. Sitting on top of the world. So then, uh, in early 2018, you, you know, you mentioned in your microconf talk that the first four months after launch, you it just everything was growth, right? This is the first half of 2018. It's like 15% growth, 25% growth, 45% growth. It sounds like that feeling of top of the world is is just continuing. And then in mid 2018, the wheels start falling off the bus. Talk, talk us through what happened there. Yeah, a little bit. So. The nature of it was, like you said, yeah. So, so we get to launch and everything. We're like, this is this is going really great. Launch week went really great, um, and then the few months after that was just every month we were growing more than the month before, and it was, and we're like, right, we made, we had hired a few people by this point, so we were spending a lot. But if our growth carried on how it was, we would we would be back to profitable long before we ran out of runway, right? And that was, we kind of, I remember us saying at the time when we took the money, we were like, we're not even going to get through half a million dollars. Like that was the minimum that was, it was even suggested for us to take. We're like, we're not even going to spend all of that. We're going to, you know, we're not going to get anywhere near zero. And then as it kept growing like that, we're like, yeah, this is all, this is all going good. Um, and we started spending more money and we started growing faster. And, and then, yeah, churn kind of caught up with us a little bit. And the, so June, 2018, MRR was about the same as it had been in May. And that was a very new feeling for us because we'd been growing, like you say, it was like, I think April to May, we grew by 6K MRR. And then May to June, we flatlined. Even then we're like, okay, that's, it's kind of normal. I'd seen this happen before you, you know, after a big launch, all that launch audience is now used up, right? You've, the people who've been following you from, from since before you launched have now bought in and it's not uncommon for that growth to slow a little bit. Problem was that the few months after that, it kind of carried on flatlining, and we're like, okay, maybe this, maybe this, maybe everything isn't hasn't fallen into place as perfectly as we thought. Yeah, there's something that happens when you have 
I've seen this multiple times, actually. It's pretty, it's pretty common, as you said, after a launch or after, if you have a lot of growth, you're adding a lot of people in the top of the funnel, you're adding a lot of people getting onboarded. And oftentimes, your highest churn is in the first 60 days of someone being in your product. And if you are growing, 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 and suddenly you flatline, that churn, the high churn early days takes about two months to catch up with that. And it's like this massive wave that just hits you hard. And if you keep growing, you never notice it. But the moment that you slow down, it, it can overwhelm you. What I find interesting is in your MicroConf Europe talk, as I understood it, it wasn't just the first 60 days of churn, but you guys had a real churn problem. What was it? I forget the exact numbers, but what, what was your churn like around that time? I guess the first thing to say about that is we also, I don't know exactly the reasons, but I've also often seen churn happen as like a 60-day thing. Ours was a little bit longer. Um, it took about four months for any churn to really kick in for new accounts. I think part of that is that like launch customers are much more forgiving, right? So a typical customer might come in and you know in the first month, two months maximum, whether they're gonna like whether they're getting success from the product. But I think with launch customers, they'll they'll wait a little bit longer. They'll you know they know that not everything is fully baked yet. And I think um, I think that also kind of lulls into that false sense of security. Churn at that point was getting up as high as like. 15 20 percent yeah it was it was over 15 percent of my each month right yeah point. so that and that's obviously tough like for for folks listening if you think about obviously 20 percent churn means you have no customers in five months 15 percent churn gives you about what six and two-thirds months so if you're not constantly adding folks even if you are that's just a very it's a very tough business to run and based on the funding you had raised you had hired out ahead of revenue, right? So you essentially had what they call burn. So you were burning cash each month. You were losing, I don't remember what the number was, 10 grand a month or something, 20 grand a month, because you had staffed up with uh, the idea that, you know, that you essentially had product market fit and we're going to continue to grow and therefore would would hit that number in a few months. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, you to, to a point, you have to do that, right? If you're never going to be in a position of burning money, you have to question why you've taken the funding, right? Yep. You know, if you're if you're always if you're only ever going to be spending money that you're making, then you don't need money from external sources. So there has to be a point of like we're going to spend a bit more, we're going to spend a little bit beyond our means because we're then going to that's going to help us recoup that faster later. Right. It's going to accelerate my growth because I can hire that extra engineer to get product uh, features built faster. I can hire the marketer to help me beat the drum more however that works out yeah exactly 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 but it's a function of of we are confident that we're going to make x amount of money back in y amount of time and if those if x and y are uh, out if you you know if you can't get your revenue that as high as you think you can as quickly as you can that's when you run into a problem and you guys did right i mean the latter latter half of 18 2018 did not sound very fun. And even, I guess it was even early, early 2019. When did you and Brennan realize that you had a problem that you needed to, to act on in essence by cutting expenses? Later than you might think, like later than we should have in hindsight. So I think when you've, when things are growing as quickly as they were and everything is moving so far upwards so fast, when the following month kind of flatlines, you see that one as the anomaly, right? You don't think that the that the growth was the, and 
an algorithm might think that that one's the anomaly. You then add in layer into that like human emotion and optimism and all those all those things, and we were clear, we were like, yeah, this is this is just a one-off. You know, next week's going to recover. It's there's no problem here, and it's only after that happens, kind of a few months, and then MRR is actually starting to trickle downwards. Where a few months ago it was growing, like we said, 40, 45 percent month over month. And at that point, burn is higher than ever because you're so sure that you're going to recoup it. So kind of towards the end of 2018, when there'd been like several months of it not growing how it had been at the beginning, was when we kind of went, yeah, the, the, this isn't the anomaly. Like that beginning bit was the anomaly. And we need to we need to do something about this because the money is finite. Yeah. And there's two things I want to touch on there. One is what what was the problem? Why why was churn so high, and why you know did you peak and then actually start essentially start declining? What was the core reason for that 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 you see looking back, you know, with a year of hindsight? Yeah, so the core reason for the churn was we we were selling something that these people hadn't been doing until that point, right? This idea of personalizing your website was fairly new to the people who were using it, like 90 plus percent of our customers weren't switching from a competitor. They were switching from, they hadn't been doing this before. They'd been doing other things to try and increase conversions on their website, but what we were selling was brand new. And so it was a very, they were kind of, a lot of people would use it. And if they hadn't either had enough education in how to make it successful for them, um, and they weren't immediately seeing results. They were like, yeah, this is kind of a nice to have. Like other people aren't doing this and they're getting on fine. So we don't really need it either. Like it was very much seen as a, like my business isn't quite ready for it yet. It's a nice to have, but it's not essential. It was kind of what we were hearing a lot. Yeah. It's really hard to invent a new product category. We often want to do that so we have no competition, but inventing a new product category really requires a lot of, a lot of time, a lot of money because you are adding new to-dos, perhaps a new role at a company, you know, the chief personalization officer, something that doesn't exist today. Maybe that exists in 10 years, but do you have, you have everything in place that you can last that 10 years? I mean, we saw HubSpot invent inbound marketing and I talked to Darmesh Shah at one point and he said, yeah, he thinks that it, it took them four years. They wrote a book and it was millions of dollars, if not, you know, tens of millions to like get that concept into people's brains. And it's like, cool, if you, <laughs> if you're in that position, then do that. But I experienced the same thing when we were, you know, getting drip off the ground and we had all these different words for what it was. Cause it was like, well, it's not an ESP and it's not marketing automation. It's this other thing. And after a while I realized no one wants to use that other thing. They want to use something that's what they already use, but better or different. It sounds like that's the path that you guys realized you were on was perhaps needing to to come closer to some existing products. Exactly. Coming closer to something that already exists in their mind that they can kind of compare you to, if nothing else, um, I think is is really important. Yeah. And so talk to me about, you know, you and Brennan realize we have a real problem here. And I know you did some some kind of gradual fixes. You raised a little bit more money. You did a little bit of consulting work. I mean, you were you were kind of trying to tweak stuff along the way, but that moment where the two of you realized we have to lay people off and make some massive changes because if, when you're running a SaaS app like this, I mean, 80%, 70% of the costs are people. It's your developers and your support people. And that's the bottom line. When you look at it, it's like we can shave our AWS bill by 10% and that saves us $300, but it's everybody's salary, right? That's really drawn it. So talk me through how, what that was like when you guys realized we really have to 
we really have to make a change. Like, how did that feel? Yeah, it's it's difficult. It's we had a really good team, and it was like even though I mean the whole company was remote, but we were we were really close. We'd built a, a solid little team there, and so that realization isn't it's not a nice it's not a nice feeling. But one thing that kind of helped was that we realized that some of the some of the hiring decisions were actually not in the company's best interest anyway. When what I mean is like part of the reason that we didn't realize there was a problem until later was because we had hired people into roles that maybe we still should have been doing where we we we'd almost without meaning to Brennan and I had abstracted ourselves away. We'd put like a layer of abstraction between ourselves and the customers with things like customer support being done by somebody that we hired and you know various customer facing roles being given out to people and actually there's a lot to be said for there was a lot of you know, they were feeding things back to us but we weren't on the front line we weren't seeing stuff as much as we should have been so part of you know part of what helped was we were like actually this this could really help anyway for us to start filling those roles ourselves again but the fact that that means letting people go is not nice not fun at all and that's that's the thing that pre-product market fit because it sounds like you really you, you never really achieved full product market fit. I, I view product market fit as a continuum. It's not a binary state. And you had you know, some product market fit with some people, but it just was not really, really catching on. And before you do have that, where it catches, you know, and, and suddenly your churn plummets and, and your trial to paid goes way up, before you have that moment, it's very hard if the founders step away, you know, because you need that tight feedback loop and you need to iterate super quickly. And so I, I find it, you know, insightful that you're bringing that up and that almost in retrospect, you noticed, oh, well, that's, you know, that's one place where we screwed up. Yeah, 100%. So if you look at our revenue graph in the first few months, it looks like what you would expect when there is product market fit. And that made us think that we had product market fit and various other things made us think it as well. And in hindsight, we did not fully have product market fit. Um, And if we'd been looking more carefully at things like our churn graph was not representative of a product market fit churn graph. But the kind of the the revenue was growing so fast at the beginning that it kind of looked like we had it. And I think I've spoken with a lot of people who have had something similar happen where kind of, I, th- I think part of it is that as a community, we've kind of got better at launching, if you like. And it's, it's a big thing I'm starting to see where several years ago, I definitely and other people, I'm sure, but I, I definitely was not as good at launching something like my, my first launches were you'd launch to pretty much nothing and you'd try and scramble to grow up from zero right it's only because we've now got better at building the audience pre-validating all that stuff that we're able to to get those kind of those re- that really fast growth at the beginning and there's a knock-on from that which is that doesn't necessarily mean that everything is going to keep going that way it's a good point you bring up of like revenue growth can mask high churn and revenue growth, it can confuse us or it can it can make us think we do have product market fit, but it's really that churn number and customer happiness and even customer onboarding, it's like activation, right? Because activation predates churn, you know, in a customer's journey. And it's like, how, how many people are using this? What type of value are they getting out of it? I mean, it's it's complicated, right? And and we wish we could just look at a dashboard of numbers and predict what's going to happen. But there's there's a lot of nuance to it and there's a lot of mixed signals. That's the hard part is when you're getting hundreds of new people trying it and they're saying, this is amazing and I'm having so much fun and I'm doing this. I feel like the results are really working out. You're like, oh man, we're just killing it here. Like we're on a rocket ship. But then in the background, when you see mixed signals, 
and you see, well, churn's high, but I'm getting all this feedback and we just grew by $6,000 in MRR last month. Like those two things are hard to reconcile because which one should you believe, you know, when you're in the moment, right? It's not, it's not this black and white. It, it is black and white in retrospect of like, oh, that's where we messed up. But in the moment, it's confusing. Yeah, 100%. So you, you'd have this thing where like on the same day, you'd have someone tweeting out about how this is the best, like the single best tool that they've ever used in their business. And then you've got someone else churning because they're like, there's no value in this. And you're like, where's the, like you say, which one of these do I listen to? The answer is probably the one that's churning. But <laughs> at the time, like in the moment, no, it's, it's not that simple, right? It's, it's, you don't know, as with a lot of things in business, you don't know which one is the anomaly. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's, I, I think a lot of us are, I hate to say this because I, I think a lot of us are just a little too glass half full. There, there may be a few too many optimists, you know, or maybe we just have the optimistic streak uh, as founders of like, hey, this will work out. We'll figure this out. It's going to go well, you know, and, and I think we do need that because of how hard this journey is. But I also think that like that dose of reality coming in of like, hey, I'm not saying the sky is falling, but we do have, a, there's, a, there's a chance that this is going to tank here in the next few months because of this high churn number. You know, having that in the back of your mind as like a, a plan B, like what's our plan B if this doesn't work out? Are we paying attention to all the numbers? That's the thing is it's not binary of like, yes, we have it. We're growing fast. Everything's great. And it's also not binary of, oh my gosh, the sky is falling. It's always this needle that's kind of moving back and forth between the two. And it's kind of judging like, well, if it swings the other way in either direction, what do we do, right? And it's thinking ahead to those alternate realities in the future of like, what, what do we do? What's our plan? So I think there's a couple of very interesting points there. One is, I agree with you about the kind of the optimism thing. I think it's it's the reason that we start businesses in the first place. So I think I think that's kind of always going to be there for a lot of us because if we were less optimistic, we would go and get jobs and we wouldn't start these businesses because of all the things that could go wrong, right? And and that's where the kind of double-edged sword comes. For us, because we had taken because we were spending so much money, even when we did start to know that maybe something, you know, that everything wasn't going perfectly, there wasn't so much we could do at that point because we were already kind of committed to, you can't just switch off those employees for a month and get back on track. Like there was some stuff, there's some stuff that you might need to do when you're in that situation that's going to be a kind of a longer term fix. And we didn't have the luxury of long term fixes because we were running out of money. When you're burning that much money month on month, you're actually, you force yourself into a certain corner where if things do start to go wrong, there's not an easy way out at that point. Yeah. And that's where it comes back to that question I asked earlier of, do you regret raising funding? You know, is like, is the moral of the story that funding is bad and you shouldn't have taken it? And my take is no, that's actually not, the, that's not the take. The take is you got the funding at a, at a solid valuation. The investors never busted your chops. As far as I know, I never busted your chops. I was replying to the emails, offering to help. I mean, we were on, you know, at least one or two phone calls talking about this stuff. So my impression is like, Having investors was almost a net positive in the sense that you could get advice from people who were kind of in it with you. But that's that's just my take from the outside. Like, what, what's it like from from your take, your and Brennan's take, in terms of was it the right call to raise the funding? Did that cause us to make bad decisions, or you know, is it more about funding was good, but we just should have spent the money differently? I don't regret taking the money. I think it made sense to do that, and like you say, we had a good valuation because because we had. Yeah, there was some track record involved. There was some pre-validation. There was some, we were already making revenue. And so we got it on good terms. 
it did help in a lot of ways. I think the mistake wasn't taking the money. The mistake was was not looking carefully enough at kind of the worst case scenario, like not looking at like, what if things aren't going to grow as fast as we think they are? Is that still going to, are we still going to be okay in that position? Yeah. So I think, I think taking money was a reasonably good call, but there are consequences to spending it so fast. We definitely spent it faster than we should have. That's a trip. And if everything had worked out and you had kept growing at 6k a month, it would be a Cinderella story. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, I guess that's the thing. Like, <laughs> I don't know the answer to that part. Was the was the expected value there positive? Was Were we actually doing exactly the right thing by spending all that money? Because growth could have continued as it did. Um, and then having to fire people, having to lay people off is just a consequence of what happens when that doesn't work out. For me, I think the fact that you then have to do that and you're like, you're kind of you're playing with people's uh, with people's employment with people's lives at that point. For me, I'd rather stick to the the path that doesn't risk having to do that at all. But I think other people would look at that and say, actually, that's you know, you made all the right calls along the way, and and when it doesn't grow as fast as you want, you just lay those people off and you move on, and and at least you tried. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of a different worldview. That's like the Silicon Valley worldview. It's not really you know what what, what I would espouse, nor I think you know you guys as well. So now, in addition to you know you, you obviously had to make some some layoffs there, which I'm sure was really tough, and you guys also made some adjustments to the product. So talk us through how you went from being this thing that pe- that was another item on their to do list, and it was something that was inventing its own category, and you shifted into being part of an existing category and doing it quite successful and kind of find what I would say finding some product market fit with it. And and folks, by the way, folks can see all of your numbers at rightmessage.bearmetrics.com because you guys are in the open startup ecosystem there. And they can look at at your revenue growth as of today. It looks like your MRR is about twenty eight thousand. And you know, given that that it's down to just yourself and Brennan at this point, you guys must be pretty pretty profitable i'm guessing yes that was the other thing is like because we had all that burn and i'm glad you brought that up it was kind of that feeling of we were feeling like every like we weren't doing nearly well enough and when you take a step back it's like we had got to 20k mrr within a few months of launching a a SaaS product like that's something we should have been pretty proud of right but we couldn't look at it like that because it was the flip side of that was no we are we're burning money we have a you know, we have a loss making company. Like there was no, there was no time to be like, yeah, we've actually got a lot of customers right now because all we could focus on was we're burning through our funding. It's like a bootstrappers, a bootstrapped success, but a f- funded failure is what it is. Right. And it's just, it's because you're spending so much money. Cause yeah, 20 K MRR three, four months after you launch, like most people listening to this podcast would, would kill for those results. Right. So that's an interesting, interesting mindset shift. Yeah. So so there is kind of the flip side of of it being very difficult to to have to make those calls and and the layoffs and so on is there is now that that kind of that sense of almost relief actually I think um I was just listening to Laura on here Laura Roder a few weeks ago she said something similar it's like with, with absolutely no disrespect to the people who 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 were affected the flip side is there is that feeling of relief of like we the company is 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 on a a sane track right now and you can think a little bit more clearly when you're not burning money, when everything is kind of moving upwards. You've got your your bank balance is going up month on month. It does help you make clearer decisions. 
For sure. So we know that's how you you know did the financial side. You're able to cut expenses, get to profitability. Product wise, how did you go from being trying to invent that new category to essentially fitting slotting into an existing category? Yeah. So as we spoke to more and more customers, and at this point we were speaking to every like we were we were speaking to a lot of customers, and we weren't abstracting them away at this point, and we were really digging deep into where the mismatch was and where some people were not getting the value from the product that they should have been, and it all came down to, like we said, the kind of, it was it was such a new product category. And what we ended up doing was saying, right, what's the, what are people, the people who are succeeding, what are they actually using this for? And a lot of them were like, okay, they are, they're swapping out the calls to action on their website. They're, like, they're swapping out the content in their calls to action to be more personalized to the segments of their audience. And they're absolutely killing it. Because we show all the graphs, we show like conversion rate within, within our product. And we're like, these people are like 2X, 3Xing their conversions by, using our platform to personalize their calls to action. What if we mini pivoted to be like, we can be your call to action builder with higher conversion rates than the one you're using now. And so now we're not competing with a product category that these people weren't using before. We're like, you all have calls to action on your website already. What if we just kind of fit ourselves into like that category and essentially pivot, pivot to have more competitors? Right? We were kind of in this space by ourselves where we're like, this is great, we have no competition. But the flip side is no one knows that they need you. Can we just pivot to uh, to say like we're kind of we're a call to action builder, but better in, in, in these various ways. Now you have something to switch from. That was kind of that was the theory and, and it kind of worked. Yeah. So to give people an idea, you really double down on your kind of the JavaScript email opt-in widget, right? I know it's it's more than that, but that that was something you really started focusing on was whether it's the toast widget in the bottom or the exit intent or, you know, the timed pop-up. That became, it, it seemed like really the, the push that you guys got behind. Yeah. And what we did is we said, we're going to make that kind of our entry-level plan. We've still got the kind of the more advanced, more flexible, you can personalize anything on your website. That became the premium plan. And the idea was if we can get people in with something they're familiar with, we can then upsell to the to the more advanced platform later once they're ready for it. But when you've got kind of a lot of people were bailing because they just they they weren't ready for, for the full personalization. Maybe they didn't have they didn't know what their segments would be and you can't personalize until you have segmentation in place. Um so we were like, yeah, we brought in this kind of this entry level and we brought it in at about the same price. We didn't really reduce pricing. We took the stuff that we had been selling and we put it at a higher price. And then we brought this kind of call to action plan, this more limited plan in at the same price that we had been selling at before. Technically, you were getting like feature wise, you're getting less for your money. But that's not always a bad thing. We were kind of we were actually limiting the thinking you had to do, at which point the product actually becomes a lot more valuable. Well, sir, it's um, it's been quite a journey, and I, I guess like congratulations making it through this tough. It's it's hard to say. It's like not an atypical startup journey because no startup journey is typical, but definitely the ups and downs you've experienced. I think a lot of us experience even without you know raising the funding. There's just a lot of hard decisions and a lot of a lot of decisions you have to make with incomplete information in essence. And I know that you guys, you know, at this point are on a much better trajectory. I mean, the fact that you're profitable, I know lets you sleep better at night. And I feel like the the lessons you've learned, you'll take with you moving forward. And that, uh, you know, I really appreciate you coming on the show to kind of share those with folks so they, they can basically learn from the, uh, what do we say in the intro? I must need to look at my intro so people can avoid the mistakes that, you know, that we've made. 
yeah 100 percent. it's um and the more i spoke with people about this kind of before and after the talk in my in uh, dubrovnik at microconf i found that kind of a lot of people saw that same that similar kind of curve of like everything's going really nicely up and now everything isn't and it's kind of what do you do at that point and what you do is going to be very different depending on are you still profitable at that point had you taken money all, all those all those things and also is it a churn problem like we had or was or is it you know is it a top of funnel problem is it a, people falling out the bottom what have you but that kind of that experience of just because it's growing it might not keep growing forever is, is something a lot of people are seeing as, as they get better at, at kind of at launching in the first place as we get better at making money we also are potentially going to fall into this these kind of traps i think it's important to be aware of them Yep. And if, if folks want to hear my own story of that with, with Drip, I did a talk a few years ago at MicroConf. Uh, if you go to robwalling.com, it's listed there, but it's called An Inside Story of Self-Funded SaaS Growth. And that's on Vimeo. And it it is, while we didn't take funding, it's very similar to what you said. Like the launch went really well. I had pre-sold it. We thought we had traction and then we just plateaued and then just sat flat. And I it was super stressful for me. And I had also hired out ahead of revenue because I had some money coming in from another app at the time. And it was some of my darkest times, you know, running a startup was was that same trough, the trough of sorrow is what, what Paul Graham calls it. And I feel like it's a pretty good, pretty good name for it. So thank you, sir, again, for coming on the show. If folks want to keep up with Right Message, you are Right Message app on Twitter and rightmessage.com. And if folks want to keep up with what you're up to, where would they head? Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm Shai S-C, S-H-A-I-S-C on Twitter and Shai.io on the web where I'm going to start writing a lot more about this stuff. There's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of um, kind of scribbled notes that I have that I'm going to start publishing. So um, there's an email list on there if people, if people want. Sounds great, man. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you for having me, Rob. If you have a question for the show, leave us a voicemail at 888-801-9690 or email questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot. It's used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us by searching for startups in any podcatcher you use and visit startupsfortherestofus.com to leave a comment or for a full transcript of each episode. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.